Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 5. The Kid. We completed our three-week stint at the Nixon without again having to confront the issue of not having Charlie Chaplin with us, although the number of times Wilbraham heard one of us say, Hey, sta- I mean, Charlie, must have made him wonder. On the last night, we convened in the adjacent Irish drinking establishment, as per, and the ale-fuelled conversation inevitably turned to the subject of the mystery new comic, hot-footing it from the fun factory. Well, it must be hot stuff, Ed Hurley sneered, if the governor is happy to shove him in ahead of the likes of me. I reckon he must be an old hand, an experienced northern comic, Alf Reeve said. Carno likes to do that from time to time, recruit someone who's made a bit of a name as a solo turn, and then start him off at the top. He did that with Harry Weldon, didn't he? Oh, God, I hope he's not a Harry Weldon, I said, that great blowhard. I think he's more likely the next big thing, a hot youngster who's appeared from nowhere while we've been away, Freddy said. What, the next Charlie Chaplin, in other words? Charles Griffiths frowned, and a cold shiver shot down my spine. Ed's right, though, isn't he? Amy Reeve said. He must be hot stuff, or else the governor would hardly have sent him over, would he? So let's hope for the best, shall we? Opinion was so divided that George Seaman, ever the opportunist, decided to supplement his ongoing quest to relieve the company of all its ready cash at his poker table, and opened a book. By the end of the evening, Griffiths had a couple of books riding on Carno's secret love child, and another covering bet on clerical error. I glanced around looking for Stan to see what he thought, as he'd been uncharacteristically quiet that evening, and to my surprise found that he wasn't even there. Once I got back to our lodgings on 20th Street, I popped my head into Stan's room to see if he was sleeping, but his bed was empty. I was puzzled and a little concerned, as Stan was a gregarious creature and not prone to wandering off and brooding alone. Still, there was nothing to be done until he showed up, and so I went and lay down on my own bed, intending to stare at the ceiling and contemplate the future. Tilly was on my mind, of course, her and the little one. My plan to persuade her to rejoin the Carnot Company once we got to Seattle was right up in the air. As number one, I could have insisted that she was hired. As number one, Stan would have done what he could for us, I was sure. Now, however, it will be this Dan Rayner with the final word, and none of us knew anything about him. I hoped he would turn out to be agreeable, but in my experience, the men who rose to become Fred Carnot's star comedians were an unpredictable bunch at best. Perhaps it was something that happened naturally, Inevitably, once someone had been made the centre of attention twice, or sometimes three times a night, the focus of all eyes, the source of all mirth. But these fellows, even the ones I rather liked, such as Fred Kitchen and Billy Ritchie, all came to believe that the world revolved entirely around them and their needs. Maybe that would have happened to Stan, but for the latest twist, maybe it would have happened to me. Just then, I heard a rattling glassy noise, such as that heard when a late-returning drunk stubs a toe on an empty milk bottle lurking in a shadowed porch. The noise trundled on, though, and I realised it was coming from overhead. Something rolled across the roof towards the front window, and then dropped. 
smashing half a second later on the path in front of the doorsteps. Curious, I hauled the sash window up and looked out, and there was what looked like a bourbon bottle in pieces down below. Someone was on the roof. I dressed quickly, grabbed my winter coat, and clambered up the fire escape. Stan was perched up on top of the house, over by a chimney stack, staring out over the baseball stadium opposite, flakes of white snow swirling around him, as if trying to decide whether or not to actually land on someone who was so fed up already. Clearly whatever had been inside the broken bottle was already inside Stan, and he was making a start on a second one. "'It's true. You must get a terrific view from up here when there's a game on,' he said, as I carefully made my way along the top ridge and sat alongside him. The snow-covered ballpark was smooth, pristine, perfectly white in the moonlight, and perfectly level, apart from a gentle bump where the pitcher's mound was buried. "'What's the deal with baseball, anyway?' I said. "'More grown-up than rounders, not as grown-up as cricket.' "'That's about the size of it,' Stan muttered, taking a slug and then offering the bottle by the neck to me. "'So,' I said, after a warming swig of my own. "'Something on your mind, Stan?' Mm, he said. "'I suppose I was wondering whether I would ever get out from under the almighty shadow of Mr. Charles Spencer Chaplin.' "'Ah,' I said. "'Him.' I was impressed, I have to tell you, with Stan's coherence under the influence of what I took to be a considerable amount of drink, but he seemed to be controlled by a cold fury which was keeping his syllables nice and clear.' I understudied him for so long, just waiting for a chance, he mused bitterly. The one time he let me play the part, I was so damn funny that it sent him into a depression, and he felt compelled to get rid of me. I remember, I said. And then when we finally got shot at the little... He paused for another slug. And I am allowed the limelight at last. It is only on condition that I pass myself off as him, and the laughs I earn with my skill are somehow made to contribute to his greater glory. But I did that. I didn't make a fuss, did I? No, mate, you didn't. Thinking that once we left Philadelphia and began the tour proper, finally it would be my turn to shine, to show people what I can do, to start to build a reputation of my own. Stan took a long draught then from the bourbon bottle, leaning backwards as he did so, and I began to be afraid he would topple over and slide helplessly down into the back garden. Stan! I cried in alarm, grabbing his coat sleeve. Steady on, chum! But oh no! Stan went on, turning to jab a finger in my face. Mr. Charles Spencer Chaplin has other ideas, because everyone is so enamoured of his genius. Here he leaned over and spat scornfully behind the chimney. That the mere understudy will not do. Only a shining star comedian can replace the star himself. So I am now to become the understudy to the replacement for the genius. And somewhere over there in that dusty shit bowl they call California, Charlie Bastard Chaplin is laughing his head off at me. As long as someone is, I said after a moment. Stan's face slowly creased into his trademark grin. <laughs> he guffawed suddenly. Yes, exactly. It doesn't matter what the laugh is or who gets it, as long as there is a laugh. That's the thing. <laughs> Thanks, Arthur. I needed that. This conversation could actually have gone on all night. After all, no one, not even Stan, had more grounds for resenting Charlie Chaplin than I. But it was cold, and I was worried that if Stan took any more liquor on board, he might finally surrender to gravity before I could catch him. So I said, Let's go inside, shall we? I think my backside is in danger of freezing to these slates. So we headed to Chicago, the first stop of our fresh tour on Considine's time. 
The man himself had gone ahead a few days earlier. His organisation had offices there, and he wanted to make sure everything was ready all the way around his circuit for the arrival of the bright new star, Mr Dan Rayner. This luminary was due to arrive by train on the morning of the very day we would open at the Chicago Empress, and Freddy and I were dispatched to meet him. We found the platform that Rayner's train would come in on, and stood just beyond the ticket collector to wait. "'Should we make a little sign to hold up?' Freddy asked. "'No,' I said, "'we're not his servants, are we? He needs to know we're not going to be at his beck and call. Start out wrong and he'll take advantage. And anyway, I think if anyone is going to spot an English comic arriving at a Chicago station, it's going to be you and me.' "'Fair enough,' Freddy said. "'Challenge accepted.' The locomotive wheezed slowly into Union Station and gasped its last up against the buffers, and as the passengers began to stream past us, I saw Freddy up on his toes, trying to beat me to the punch. I grinned and began to apply myself properly. I dismissed anyone who was travelling light. The chap we were waiting for would have a travelling trunk, and if I was lucky I might even spot the Lusitania label first, and then would be able to claim that I'd instinctively recognised the new man's funny bones. More travellers strode past, with Freddy peering at their faces as they went by, trying to discern a comic's innate charisma. The poor sap. I took a step back and looked along the platform, and suddenly there, a burly fellow, middle-aged, red-faced, was bullying a porter around, while wearing a top coat that could hardly have looked more English if he was wearing it as a piece of costume for a pantomime, one of those houndstooth monstrosities that seems to have a matching cape attached to the back of it, the sort of thing that a murderer might wear whilst fleeing from Sherlock Holmes. The porter was bowing and scraping this way and that, trying to lug an enormous trunk up onto his handcart, while the big man barked at him, prodded him, and mopped his own brow with a white handkerchief. Gotcha, I thought, but my moment of triumph was quickly deflated by the realisation that our new number one was clearly going to be an old-school theatrical monster. I sighed, my shoulders sagged a little, and I couldn't help fearing for the future. How was such a man likely to greet my scheme to add Tilly and the baby to the company, his company, capriciously, unenthusiastically? Perhaps he would turn out to be the type who responded to flattery, to a bit of buttering up. My imagination began to turn to the grovelling I would have to do, to the levels of unctuousness I would have to summon up from somewhere, and I began to feel faintly nauseous. I watched as the man waddled along the platform, leaning backwards slightly to balance his protuberant belly, clearly utterly full of his own importance, as arrogant as the day was long. If I wasn't careful, I was already going to hate him before he'd even had his ticket punched. "'Excuse me?' a thin, reedy little voice said. "'But surely you are Arthur Dando?' I looked round, and then down, and standing before me was a slight young fellow clutching a carpet-bag. He looked like he'd barely, if ever, felt the need to shave, and his sandy hair was so fine it hardly seemed to be affected by gravity at all, flying wispily around his head in the station's through draughts. "'I am, yes,' I said, surprised, and the pale youth went on. "'And surely, over there, that is Fred Carno, Jr.' "'That's right,' I frowned, only really giving him half my attention "'as I tried to keep an eye on the bullish chap with the trunk. "'Is there something I can help you with?' "'I am Dan Rayner,' the stripling cried, thrusting out his hand eagerly. "'I took it in a sort of disbelieving half-trance, and it was cold, unnervingly so. "'It was as if the boy didn't have quite enough blood in him, somehow. "'Freddy had seen us shaking hands and came over to join us, "'his puzzled expression betraying his own disbelief.' The newcomer was all enthusiasm, though, and didn't seem to notice. "'Mr. Carno, sir,' he beamed, 
I was with your father only just over a week ago, and I am happy to report that he is in rude health. Um, excellent news, Freddy mumbled. Well, who are we waiting for? Rayner said, looking around at the flow of humanity. You, I said. We've come to collect you. Really? Rayner said, his eyebrows shooting up in astonishment. Really? That's most awfully kind. Shall we? Freddy said, and we guided him towards the cab rank. Gosh, Rayner said as we made our way out. Imagine me in a show with Arthur Dando. What larks? Freddy and I exchanged a glance, which we were able to do over the top of this little chap's sandy head. Do you know me, then? I asked. Well, by sight, and by reputation, Rayner replied. Everyone remembers the football match the night you played the Oxford and had your knee broken. I felt a twinge in the joint just hearing the incident mentioned. You heard about that, I said. Heard about it? Why, I was there. You were there? Oh, yes, I was right there, on the stage. On the stage? Yes. I was one of the supers, in the crowd of football fans, up towards the back. You probably wouldn't even have seen me, but oh, yes, I was there all right. Arthur Dando. Well, well, well. Freddy and I stopped in our tracks, and little Dan Rayner carried on walking, shaking his head in amusement at the trick life had just played on him. He was a super, Freddy whispered. Do you remember him? Well, there are around eighty at least for that sketch, I whispered back, and I don't think I knew any of them. He must have had a pretty meteoric rise. Is that right, a meteoric rise? Or do meteors only come down? They come down, I said, and they crash, and they burn. <laughs> Before we took Rayner to the theatre to meet everyone else, we stopped by our hotel to drop off his baggage. When he saw the room he had been allocated, he beamed radiantly. Gosh, he said, what comfortable lodgings. Who am I sharing with, do you know? Well, no one, I said. This is just for you. We'd become used to the number one having his own room in recent months, as Chaplin's self-importance had blossomed, and Alfred thought it prudent to continue the arrangement for the new man, just in case he turned out to be a touchy individual. In point of fact, though, nothing could have been further from the truth. "'My own room!' Rayner exclaimed. "'Golly! Whatever next?' Well, next was the theatre, the Empress, where young Rayner's attention was taken by the bill matter adorning the front of the building. "'Fred Carno's Comedians,' it read in large blue lettering, "'featuring London's brightest comic star.' "'How exciting!' Rayner beamed, pointing at this line of text. "'Who's that?' "'Well... That would be you, Dan, Freddy said, a puzzled frown creasing his forehead, as it had done pretty much since we left the station. Oh, my. That's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? The kid grimaced. Just then, the theatre manager, Mr. Gerard, came bustling through the double glass doors and over to where we were standing. Freddy and I knew this Gerard from previous visits, of course, and as he was one of the cadre of buffoons who had refused to countenance Stan taking over from Chaplin, we were being decidedly frosty towards him on this visit. He ignored us completely, however, and launched straight into an oily welcome for our companion. "'And this must be Mr. Rayner,' Gerard oozed. "'We are so pleased, pleased and proud, that you will be beginning your triumphant tour of our beautiful country at our humble theatre. Welcome, sir, welcome.' Young Rayner was taken aback by this, as well he might be. "'Well, that's... that's charming, isn't it?' he said, glancing to me for confirmation. "'Thank you, sir.' I steered our charge inside, away from the bowing and scraping, and took him up to the stage, where I delivered him into the capable hands of Alf Reeves. Alf, this is Dan Rayner, I said. Delighted, sir, Dan said, offering his hand. This, Alf said, 
taking a second or two to get over his initial surprise. Well, welcome, Dan, welcome. Let me introduce you to the company. Alf led young Rayner around the stage to meet his new colleagues, and almost all of them were regarding him with astonishment. Edgar Hurley, however, went for disdain and shook hands as though distancing himself from an unpleasant smell. Behind me, I heard Charlie Griffiths bemoaning the fact that his bet hadn't panned out. "'I was going to have a couple of bucks on strange pasty child as well,' he muttered. When the introductions were complete, there was a brief hiatus as we all waited for our new number one to take charge, as was the Carno way. Dan Rayner stood in the middle of the stage, blinked a couple of times, and then said, "'So, chaps, what sketch are we playing?' As we were standing in the middle of the set, which had been assembled for a full rehearsal, and it was the set for the most readily identifiable of Carno's routines, the classic mumming birds, the governor's trademark skit, we didn't quite know what to make of this for a moment. And surely Carno must have briefed him, mustn't he, before he left? Then it occurred to us that he must be joking. He was a deadpan artist, that was what it was, and we started to laugh. Part of it was relief, I think, that despite his unprepossessing appearance, the lad clearly had funny bones, so we laughed, and young Dan laughed along with us, and when that died down, he said, "'No, but really, what sketch are we playing?' Alf frowned. "'Did Carno not tell you?' Dan shook his head and shrugged. "'He didn't say anything about it,' Alf said, suddenly perturbed. Dan grinned amiably. "'Not a dicky bird.' "'Well, we're playing a night in an English music hall.' "'Right.' Right, I see. And what is that? Alf suddenly thought he saw where the confusion was coming from. Oh, of course you'll know it as as mumming birds. That's just the title we use in America to play up the Englishness of it all, you see. Dan nodded thoughtfully. Yes, yes, good, good, he mused. And what is mumming birds when it's at home? For a moment or two there was silence, broken only by the sound of a dozen jaws dropping open in amazement. Alf had gone very pale. You... "'You've never played mummingbirds,' he said in a small voice. Dan shook his head. "'You chaps know what you're doing, clearly. "'Just point me in the right direction and I'll try not to cock it up.' <laughs> Alf began to scratch his head vigorously. I glanced at my colleagues. None of them still thought Rayner might be joking. "'Oh, one other thing,' the kid said. "'Who's the number one? You could have heard a pin drop. Then Emily Seaman dropped a cup of tea, and we definitely all heard that.' "'Well, you are, Daniel,' I said. "'Now it was Dan Rayner who went pale. "'If anything, he went a little paler than Alf, "'but then he was probably paler to begin with. "'Lummy,' he murmured, and sat down heavily on a chair. "'A lot can happen in the next three years.' Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chapter 6 a tragedy of errors. Well, there was no time to inquire further into the circumstances of Dan Rayner's arrival. We had two shows to do that day with a lead comic who'd never even seen the classic Mummingbirds before. Everyone took their places. The Eton boy and his dotty uncle in the stage left box. The numbers man centre stage. The deliberately execrable acts waiting in the wings. And Stan walked young Rayner through the role of the inebriated swell one step at a time. Stan was the very soul of generosity. It was eating him up that he was being replaced by this kid, but he patiently showed him every little trick and tumble. Coo, little Dan said at one point. That is fantastic. I'll never be able to do it like that. Why aren't you playing the part, Stan? Stan sighed. Now you have a go. Come on. We quickly realised that Dan was going to need all the help he could get, and everyone was encouraging, giving the kid a little applause whenever he got something right. Only Ed Hurley was unable to keep his feeling secret, tutting loudly every minute or two, and cursing when he was required to do something again because the new boy had missed a step. Long before he was even remotely ready, it was time to strike the set so that the matinee bill could get underway, and Stan took his pale protégé down into the dressing room to teach him the drunk's make-up. Alf Reeves remained on stage as the hands dismantled the boxes, and I wandered over. "'Well,' I said, "'here's a thing.' "'I know,' Alf replied. "'But look here. The governor knows what he's doing. We know that, don't we?' "'None better,' I said. "'So he's seen something, right? And we just haven't seen it yet. Maybe he's one of those comics who comes alive in front of an audience, you know.' "'Maybe,' I said. "'And actually, you couldn't have charged money to watch Chaplin rehearse, could you?' A short while later, I found myself in my top hat and cape as Dr Bunko, the great prestidigitateur, standing in the wings, trying to work out who was playing the maracas while there was an act on stage. Was there a flamenco dancing troupe coming on after us? Someone needed to tell them to put a sock in it. Then I realised the noise I could hear was the chattering of poor Dan Rayner's teeth. He stood there in the swell's finery, not a dot of colour in his cheeks, leaning against the wall for support, trembling uncontrollably. Dan, I hissed, are you all right? He looked at me, and his eyes were glassy, unfocused. Stage fright. I'd seen this before, of course, in six years as a performer, but this had to be the worst I'd witnessed, and by a distance. What to do? He looked like he needed a cup of hot sweet tea and a good lie down, but there was no time for that, and besides, everyone knew that the only actual cure for stage fright was to go out onto the stage and confront the demon face to face. Suddenly Stan was there, putting his arm around the kid and telling him it was all going to be absolutely fine. "'You're funny,' he whispered, "'really funny, and the sketch runs on rails. It's impossible to mess it up. So come on, let's show him, eh?' Rayner brightened a little and straightened himself up, almost as if he'd suddenly discovered the presence of a backbone. Stan pushed past me then on his way to the wings on the opposite side, and as he did so he showed me his crossed fingers.' Then, all at once, our signature music was playing, a little ditty called Showtime, and we were underway. 
Freddy, the numbers man, stepped out to introduce the first act. Those of us waiting our turn craned around the fly curtains to get our first glimpse of the new boy in action, hoping against hope that he was going to pull something out of the hat. The entrance of the inebriated swell set the tone for the whole performance. He would sway drunkenly into the fake box, noisily toppling over a chair and wriggling out of his big top coat. Then he would attempt to hang this item on a hook, he would miss, and pitch right over the edge of the box and out onto the stage proper, sprawling at the feet of the hapless numbers man. We all wanted to see, all fifteen of us, how young Rayner was going to measure up. After all, our livelihood was depending on it, rather. So, on his cue, or just a moment or two after his cue, to be strictly accurate, he wobbled into the stage right box, and we all held our breath. He barged and banged around a bit, rather mechanically perhaps, lacking the fluency of Charlie and Stan, but then this was his first time. He wrestled his way out of his coat, moved uncertainly towards the hook, glanced out onto the stage, which telegraphed the fall somewhat, but as I said, it was his first time and he'd barely rehearsed at all. Then he dropped the coat, made to dive over the rail, then bent double over it and deposited what little lunch we'd managed to persuade him to eat on the stage at Freddy's feet. Well, it was certainly a moment. Not the one we were expecting, but it certainly grabbed the audience's attention. And ours. Dan looked up apologetically at Freddy, his face paler than his white face makeup, And then he retched again, poor chap. After this calamitous beginning, the company picked itself up by sheer willpower and drove on with the routine. Dan Rayner gathered himself gamely and tried to make a contribution, but he was very quiet. His voice was too thin to carry in a large theatre, and he seemed woefully short of leading man charisma, even in his very best moments. If we were disappointed, that was nothing to how the audience were feeling. They weren't delighted by the drunk's antics. They wanted him to be shoved back into his box so they could listen to the acts, the deliberately poor and incompetent acts. He did contrive one big laugh when he accidentally slipped on his backside in his own regurgitated luncheon, but those of us used to seeing that kind of pratfall done could see that he'd properly hurt himself, and he was limping badly when we finally vacated the stage to half-hearted acclaim. Down in the green room, Rayner rubbed his hip sheepishly. "'I feel I've let you all down,' he said. "'I'm so sorry.' "'Not a bit of it,' Amy Reeves cried. "'Anyone can have a sticky start. "'Don't give it a second thought.' "'You've given yourself quite a bump there, young man,' Emily Seaman said, "'and Wren Hurley trotted off with a tea towel "'to try and find a block of ice in the alleyway outside the stage door. "'Imagine if he'd been any good,' Ed Hurley muttered "'as the ladies fussed around our stricken number one. "'He could have had his pick of them.' "'Never mind,' Stan said, putting an encouraging arm around the lad. "'You'll be much better this evening. You'll see.' He wasn't, though, more's the pity. If anything, he was even quieter, and the limp he'd acquired made the whole performance as painful as he was making it look to walk. So it was a subdued and disconsolate group that gathered in the bar at the end of the evening, and sorrows were quickly being drowned. We tried our best to make Dan feel better, but now that the urgency of getting him ready for the day's performances was over, there were questions that needed to be answered, and we wanted to do it as kindly as possible. "'You've never been a number one before then, Dan,' Alf began. "'Never have,' the lad admitted. "'Not back in England. Not on tour. Never.' "'Believe me,' Dan said. "'No one is more surprised than I am that I've been thrust into the limelight. I got the impression that the Governor rather picked me at random.' "'At random?' I said. I know. It doesn't make much sense, does it? How did it come about, if you don't mind me asking? Alf said. Well, I was at the Fun Factory, 
and there were quite a few of us all milling about, you know, waiting for the omnibuses to come along. We could all remember that scene only too well. Dozens of Carnos would gather every afternoon at the Governor's base of operations to be distributed around the capital's music halls to play their three a nights. And Carno himself came out of his office and looked down at all of us, so there was a bit of a hush, you know, while we waited to see what he might want. And suddenly he called out, "'Who wants to go to America?' And nearly everyone's hands shot up. I mean, it's a dream, isn't it? Unless you've got a family or something. See the world, all that. It is that, I agreed, having felt very much the same way myself not so long ago. And he looked down at us, and his eyes seemed to sweep over every face, until he sort of settled on me, and he pointed. You'll do, he said. My office, now. Then he gave a little cough, and smiled a not altogether pleasant smile, and I trotted up after him, and he said he needed a replacement to leave right away to join the American Touring Company, and, well, here I am. He didn't tell me which show I'd be doing, certainly didn't tell me I'd be replacing Charlie Chaplin, didn't tell me anything, just asked me my name, slapped a ticket for the Lusitania into my hand, and I left the next morning. "'I see,' said Alf, rubbing at his temple. "'Well, that explains... yes,' I said." I think it does. Dan Rayner finished the pot of beer in front of him and winced. Now, if you'll excuse me, he said, my hip hurts like bilio, and I think I'll call it a night. But if you could see your way to a little more rehearsing in the morning, I'd really be most awfully grateful to all of you. Of course, Stan said. Good night, Dan. Amy, our mother hen, took it upon herself to see Dan back to his lodgings, leaving the rest of us to stare into our beers and contemplate. "'You don't think, do you?' I began, and as I looked around at my friends I saw that I was not alone in my reading of the situation. "'Huh!' Alf growled, nodding slowly. "'The Governor has sent this youth over merely to prove a point to Considine.' "'That's exactly what I think,' Alf agreed sourly. "'It's an article of faith for him that his own name pulls in the punters. "'So he's sent along this innocent nobody, plucked from the ranks,' just to demonstrate that it doesn't matter who's in the turn, it will still draw them in. Stan banged his fist on the table suddenly, making us all jump. I've only met that lad today, he said. We all have, but can any of you imagine him ever doing a bad turn to anybody? Fancy chucking him to the wolves like this. It's an insult, that's what it is, Hurley growled. A calculated insult to me, and the years I've given Carno to send this green stripling to lord it over me. Oh, do give it a rest, Ed, Wren cut in and her husband looked daggers at her as a reward. Not everything is about you, you know. Think about that poor lad. Sent all this way, all by himself, to a strange country, to a strange bunch of people. We're not that strange, Emily piped up, only to find he's the punchline to a cruel, cruel joke. I agree with Stan. It's brutal. He's a monster, that Carno. That's all he is. The lad's just not up to it. Anyone can see that, Hurley snarled. Yes, of course, I know that. He knows that too, doesn't he? having had his nose rubbed in it all day long, but worst of all, Carno knows it, and he just doesn't care. He's so determined to score points off Mr Considine that he's scarred this boy, scarred him forever, I shouldn't wonder. I'll be surprised if he can bring himself to step out onto the stage tomorrow. Wren, the soft thing, pulled out a lacy handkerchief from her sleeve and dabbed away a tear or two. Amy came back in from tucking little Dan into his bed. Poor lamb, she said. I don't think he's a bloodless little cove, do you? "'What?' I said. "'Who thinks that?' "'Oh, you haven't seen this, then?' Amy produced a copy of the first edition of the morning paper, folded open to a review of our matinee, and slapped it down on the table. It wasn't good. Alf held his hands up for quiet. 
Here's the thing, he said solemnly. It's not ideal. Far from it. But here we are. We're stuck with it and we have to make it work. We have to make damn sure that Considine never gets wind of what's happened and in the meantime we rehearse and rehearse until we make a proper leading comic out of that boy. Agreed? <laughs>